Hey guys, I'm here with Lloyd de Jong. Uh, he has a YouTube channel, and uh, I stumbled across him a while back talking about the early church fathers, and his channel is just all around amazing with how in-depth he gets into a lot of these topics, and I wanted to bring him on uh, to talk about early church fathers and the, the Didache and all that type of stuff, um, just because he has a wealth of information and he just does so much research that's really impressive. So thank you, Lloyd, for being here. But before we get into your uh, talk, into what you're going to be talking about, let's just give an introduction of who you are and what exactly you do. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me on. So yes, uh, my name is Lloyd de Jong, I'm South African. I spent 11 years of my life in the Middle East, uh, working most of that time in defense and national security. So I worked alongside law enforcement, the military and government to protect um, critical national infrastructure borders from intrusion, from things like smugglers, things like potential terrorists, uh, even things um, from having secure facilities breached by special forces, things like that. So our job was to detect them and protect uh, assets and people, even airports, so civilian infrastructure, government infrastructure, uh, what they call VVIP, which is heads of state. I would design systems like that. And I traveled across the Middle East and I started to learn the dysfunction within Islamic society. I started to see it firsthand and that made me very curious. It made me want to learn. And I started to read the standard, you know, texts that everyone, the standard literature and, and I didn't find it satisfying. And, and I started to dig deeper and um, eventually learned about Islamic Sharia, the Islamic law, which is far more detailed than the Quran and the Hadiths and far more explanatory as well. And um, yeah, and then, and this, this really is this, this, this actually supersedes those previous sources, the Quran and the Hadith, it actually supersedes those in complexity and detail. And now I have a YouTube channel. I started with Islam, but I also discuss, I'd say Christian history. I do, I guess some people would call it a, a forensic analysis of history. I, I look at the kind of attacks that the church faces and I do examinations of atheism, Islam, Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism was a problem in the very first years of the church, literally at the beginning. And it is, it is, it morphs, it changes, it's chameleon. And it is the, the, it is the thing that infects the world today that is causing the corruption and the dysfunction we see today. So I discuss these issues. I'm I'm very blunt. I was raised Anglican, which is high church Anglican. I uh, come from a family of, of of priests and bishops and so on. And um, and I was always curious as to why we never spoke about the Catholic Church, never spoke about the Apocrypha. Those things were, you know, just don't go there. I was always curious about that. And um, and yeah, and the more I learn, the more I see that that Protestant history is filled with false narratives with uh, gaps in the information that lead to, let's just say, erroneous conclusions. And yeah, I, I discuss these issues. I discuss my concerns, the problems I see with uh, Protestantism, the problems I see with Islam, and uh, how ideology affects the world today. Hopefully that is a good answer. Yeah, it's, it's great. And uh, I highly recommend y'all checking out his channel. Just uh, you'll be uh, said to this <laughs> to him before we recorded. It felt like I was taking a, a course in college or a semester where I just there's so much information. And I really it's really well researched. And I really appreciate 
Thanks. how much you go into that. And I love the the sarcastic take you also bring to a lot of uh, the, the things that you're presenting, which is really um, makes it a little bit yeah. the, the difficult situations or the difficult um, teachings. These things make me angry. When I see the lie, it makes me angry. Um, for those who know me, um, they know this, but for those who, who might not know my channel, I have, I use, okay, I've been, I worked for a long time in military technology, very high tech. And um, so I'm comfortable with technology. I worked in the IT industry for a long time as well. Again, on very high end, expensive tech. So I'm familiar with software and hardware. So I utilize, I've been utilizing software for a long time to search through and index my, my books. I've got over 2000 volumes that I've handpicked over the years, put them into an archive. I've got software that indexes these, allows me to search through this very rapidly. And then um, now with AI, I'm able to merge this data to have AI search through multiple volumes, you know, and collect all that data together and um, start to present very detailed analyses. But also I provide all of my sources. I show them to people so that they can get those sources themselves, check them themselves. And um, so that's where my analyses are based on. Awesome. Well, do you want to roll right into your uh, presentation of what you got to share? Um, no, you, well, let's, I'll take your questions and I'll take your questions and then we can, we can do from there. Do you have any questions about the work that, that I do? Um, cause you did send me some questions about that. Yeah. So I'm just curious about realistically, what is, um, where you are now in your faith with doing all of this research that you, you go into it. Cause you're talking about raised Anglican, um, has this, since it's opened your eyes, has it uh, kind of adjusted your view on the, the Catholic Church and and your view on a, a lot of things surrounding the um, maybe the heresies, for instance? Or, um, yeah, you know that that's an interesting question, and I, you know, if you've read um, *Mere Christianity* by C.S. Lewis, and I, to be honest, I've tried to read it and I found it very boring. <laughs> um, um. My mother read it. She loved it. But he does say that he was the most unwilling convert and he was dragged kicking and screaming into the church. Right. And I think for a lot of converts who go from Protestantism to Catholicism, that's a similar process. It's a very difficult adjustment when you to 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 make that change. But having studied history, as I think was it um, Cardinal Newman said, those who study history, you know, no longer remain Protestants, I believe you said something like that. Um, and I and I can I think I can verify that that the more that I study history by going through the original sources, not a third party retelling of it or paraphrasing of it, but reading the actual words of the early fathers, the more I see, but this is Catholic. This is not Protestant, this is not Baptist, this is not evangelical, this is not Calvinist, this is not non-denominational, this is explicitly Catholic. And and this has led me to look at the words of very well-known Protestants. And what I see there is that they are misrepresenting the history. They're misrepresenting the church fathers. They are leaving out critical pieces. They are, they are presenting clever arguments that are not fully truthful, I think, leaving out pieces of information that would lead to a different conclusion. They are biased in their views. This is my, my conclusion. And the early church from the conclusions I've come to is explicitly Catholic. The practices are recognizably Catholic. And, and, and this goes on into the seventh century when you go up to the, to the late church fathers. And, uh, and this, 
leads me to think that, and also when I've read Martin Luther and John Calvin, you see the Gnostic influences within them. You see the um, the, the ancient heresies that they've revived. Uh, you start to look at how those things were discussed in the early church in the first three or 400 years of the church as, as heresies. And then Martin Luther, Calvin, and others are incorporating those ideas directly into their theology. That, that for me is a big concern. Um, I see I see Protestantism as a corruption, as a deviation. That is not to say that that it hasn't produced good Christians, very strong Christians, but it's in spite of those problems, not because of. And uh, and yeah, it leads me to to to. I mean, I've been attending the Catholic Church for what, what two or three years now here in Poland because it's a Catholic country, so it's all in Polish. So it's not like I know what they're saying, but it's familiar to me because it's very similar to the Catholic to the Anglican or Episcopalian, Episcopalian Church. So, um, yeah, so I, it leads me to think that the Catholic Church is the original church. It's really fascinating how, because uh, I've had people on about their conversion, and it's really fascinating to see how God leads people in their own separate ways of how he, they end up to the church. One um, woman, female, who the video will be up soonish whenever people are seeing this. Um, she was a Mormon, then atheist, but what really got her when she visited a Catholic church was the veils and the traditionalist of it all, of like the male and female roles. But it's really fascinating how, in your case, it's it's going through church history and it's going diving in depth into a lot of the the um, different writings of the early church fathers, and it's really fascinating and beautiful to see how that happens. And you mentioned that there's like heresies that. And I think it's a good clarification because I always bring this up whenever we talk about the, the Protestant Catholicism divide is that, like you were saying, there's so many good Protestants who are good Christians who love the Bible. And I've been to Protestant churches before, uh, before coming back to the, the Catholic faith. And there's so mm -hmm. many wonderful people in there that love uh, the Bible. And I, I want them to come to the church because they're mainly because there's so much richness in the church and the, the, the early church fathers and all the, mm -hmm. uh, the understanding of the, the Bible and going deeper into a lot of these, like say private revelations, people go down, but it's, it's mm -hmm. very, um, it's just, there's so much, such a wealth of treasure and information that I just want Protestants to also be a, a part of. And, um, but to backtrack, you were talking about they brought Protestantism brought back heresy. So, you mind giving like a, a brief example of that? Um, for instance, there's a uh, yeah, actually, hold on, let me find this. There's a heresy called predestinarianism. Let me find that. So, there was a heresy called predestinarianism, which was rejected by the Council of Orange. I know it's spelled orange, but it's French apparently. <laughs> so, so. I'm in America, this, so it's orange. You, you're right. You're right. It's a faucet, <laughs> not a tap. <laughs> right. And uh, what's the temperature? Yeah, it's uh, six foot three inches. Well, what's that in human? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so the early church in the fourth or fifth centuries, and then again in the sixth century, then again in something like the eleventh or twelfth centuries, and then again in the seventeenth century, condemned a heresy called predestinarianism. This was basically theological determinism, which is very similar in essence to when you look at atheist materialistic determinism. They're just they're two different ways of arriving at the same goal, but I think they both spring out of a similar kind of 
out of reasoning error, <laughs> if you will. Um, but the early church always believed that the that God desires the salvation of all people, and I think biblically that is very very clear. The early church fathers, the all understood things, understood theology that way. God wants the desire of all people. Not all people will accept salvation, but there were these people that these groups that sort of created this idea of an elite, like a Gnostic elite who know, and those who are too unwashed, too unclean, who won't listen, etc., who um, who will not be saved. And Jesus didn't come for them. He came for the special ones. And this was condemned in multiple councils, like I said, in the, something like the fifth century. It was, I have an article on it on my channel about on the, my coffee page about that, where I discuss this. It was condemned as a heresy to say that God didn't, you know, send his son to die for, for everyone, but just for special, random, arbitrary people. And Martin Luther and John Calvin, both of them revived this heresy. So Martin Luther, and people think that Calvinism is where theological determinism is most clearly expressed, but Calvin, Calvin was eight years old when Martin Luther was supposedly, according to the narrative, nailing his theses to the Wittenberg church, which, is, which apparently is a legend that occurred, that was written 30 years after Martin Luther died. So that was created as a, as apparently as a legend to to sort of embellish the story of Martin Luther. But Calvin was was a little boy when that happened. Martin Luther was in his late twenties, I believe. So, so this idea was taken up by Calvin, but it started with Martin Luther, of this double predestination, and this is a heresy. It was also something that is known within Gnosticism. Now, when you are reviving ideas that that the Church has multiple times condemned and that is known to come straight out of known heresies, anti-Christian heresies, I'd say that that puts a question mark on it. For instance, the Second Synod of Orange, or Second Synod of Orange in 529 condemned it, amongst others, and the Council of Trent condemned it, amongst others. It was condemned as well, I think, in the 11 or 1200s. So. Why do you see just inclination because you dive into history? Why do you think these... Uh, heresies keep popping up, like Gnosticism and all of that. Why do you think it's, it seems like it, it dwindles down, dies down? I guess it's like a snake in the grass where it dies down and then it just springs back to to life. Um, you know, we forget, and then we forget that we forgot, and then these things see a safe opportunity to rise up again. Um, so I, I think this is um, also. Let, let me. There's a there's a quote I want that. Yeah, I'll answer that for you in just a moment. Let me look. <laughs> let me find something. Um, you know, friends of mine used to say. Used, I learned a saying once that if evil doesn't get you, ignorance will. Right. So evil always poses a threat, but we've been taught not to believe in evil. Right, and. But ignorance is a relentless adversary, and few people want to admit or acknowledge or even know that they are ignorant. So, and this doesn't mean they're stupid. Ignorance just means lack of knowledge, right? So we have to arm ourselves with knowledge. So some, somewhere we forget, then we forget that we forgot. And then because of that, these things come back. And they will always come back. They're relentless. They, I mean, ultimately, we know that the source of this relentless evil is, would be satanic. This would be the devil. We want to put it in those terms. So, hope does that answer your question? Yeah, we can does. explore that further. But yeah, yeah, I think ignorance is also kind of uh, goes in counter with um, 
being humble and wanting to realize that you don't know everything and being willing to understand because i feel like ignorance is sort of coincides with pride of like oh i don't need to learn about say the catholic church i don't need to dive into these writings because i already know that it's heresy or it's wrong or the the catholic church is yada yada or whatever you hear nowadays that it, it seems like it just goes in counter with or it goes against the the willingness to be humble with yourself and realizing that you need to, I guess, research more, so to speak. You, you've made me think of something. There, This is something I'm actually planning to have a talk on. I actually have a presentation which brings up this very point and expands upon it where I know everything. But just a couple of points I'll raise. Martin Luther literally stated, he wrote it in Latin. It's not often shown to people, but it was written in Latin, so it's obscure, but it's his own words. And he says that every Christian is his own church and own Pope. Um. So therefore, right, he literally said that. Right? So now later on, he realized the error of his ways and he tried to, to turn it around, but too late. You know, the, the, but this means that this is now maybe not explicit, but it's implicit within the movement, the Protestant religion that he created. And of course, if the Bible has no errors and I read the Bible and the Holy Spirit only speaks truth and the Holy Spirit speaks to me because I'm my own church and my own Pope and I am possessed by the Spirit, then I cannot be in error. That's why me and my one million best friends all disagree and have contradictory and incompatible theologies. Yeah, you see the fruits of that uh, belief in Protestantism as a whole, because there's so many different sects, and when people don't like this one belief that this church, because people say there's no authority in, or they don't like the authority of the Catholic Church, but in in general, if you're going to a certain church, eventually there's going to be an authority figure. It's just depending on where you place that authority, whether it is you personally with how you're reading the Bible and you're saying. That's definitive. You're technically the authority in that case. Or if you're going to some some other church, and that's why you see a lot of church hopping because people just want to hear what they want to hear. With yeah. a now, lot if the Bible has no contradictions and the Holy Spirit doesn't teach contradiction, then how can you have contradictory theologies in, across these churches? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it comes back to, to being humble of saying like, oh, I can't definitively define all the teachings because – I mean, Sola Scriptura, even though I've gone to Protestant churches before on my way back to Catholicism, but the Sola Scriptura never made sense to me because you logically, if you read a passage and you don't quite understand the specifics of it and you take it one way, somebody could easily take it the other way. And you see that with a lot of Protestant texts where they're saying, oh, it, this line means this. And another one says this line means this. And you have a lot of these disagreements. And obviously, Sola Scriptura is not the foundational. Um, pillar that it needs to be. Obviously, Catholics hold it in high regard, Scriptura, but there needs to be another balancing authority act and being able to humble yourself and saying, hey, this magisterium is going to be able to decipher it properly because this is how it was laid out. Uh, and having that humble instead of being prideful and saying, no, I know what's right is, I think, the, 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 a lot of the clash that you're seeing. Um, Agreed. <clears throat> Definitely agreed. Um, I've discussed this on my channel several times. Like when people say Sola Scriptura, okay, which version of the Bible? 
right? Are you talking about the Catholic version, the Ethiopian version? Are you talking about the 1500s Luther version of 1537? Are you talking about the 1590s version, the 1600s version? Are you talking about the Calvinist version? Are you talking about the evangelicals who have a different canon? Are you which which? Let's pick a canon first. Which one are you talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And then the the Protestant canon, like if you look at the Lutheran canon, was only established at about 1700. Right, something like that. Then the Calvinist canon was, I think, adopted, finally finalized later. And then, of course, the Bible changed again in the 1800s, right? So so the thing is, so okay, so if, if technically the Protestant canon was only finished as late as the 1800s, so what were the early church fathers relying on if there was no fixed canon until hundreds of years after Jesus died? It's kind of like, hmm. So if there was no scriptura, how were you soloing the thing? You know? mm -hmm. Great question. It actually led to one of my questions. Like how, uh, through your work research, how did um, early uh, church fathers pass down this information? Do, do you see their writings? Oral on tradition. About through no. oral tradition and extra biblical writings like the Didache and numerous other texts. Now, so these, so there were also, if you, it's, it's, it's explicit in the Bible. I mean, there are these, letters where Paul writes and he says, hold fast to the things that I've written and to the things that I have told you. And then it also states, I think there's various, there's various passages to the effect of if everything that was said and done were written down, no amount of books in the world could hold them all. And we could only write a small portion of it, right? This is quite explicit. So, so you, there's evidence of oral teaching. There's evidence of uh, traditions that were established. So Martin Luther, obviously, because he wanted to take control away from the Catholic Church and the Pope. Remember, Martin Luther saw himself as a prophet. He literally saw himself, so he was higher than the Pope. He was greater than the Pope. He was the prophet, Martin Luther. He was hailed as a prophet in Germany by his followers. So he had to destroy tradition. He had to destroy the concept of the magisterium. And thus, he was left with only the Bible as an authority, but then whose interpretation? And then Martin Luther gets into the situation where he writes in the forward to his um in the forward to his his analysis of the gospel of peter the gospel of paul sorry the gospel of paul and i will be covering this i have shown this multiple times on my channel but i will be doing a presentation exactly on this topic soon where he states that when you read this gospel of paul or any gospel in the bible only understand it according to my words my interpretation. And he says bluntly, ignore everyone else, ignore every other interpretation of this, whether it is St. Augustine, whether it is Origen, whether it is, he says, it doesn't matter who, if it's no matter who gives you an alternative interpretation to mine, ignore them, even if they are one of the church fathers or someone greater than the church fathers. Now, who's greater than the church fathers, Adam? The, I would assume the apostles. Yes. And Martin Luther explicitly states this. I mean, I can show this if you'd like, but this is what he says. So he says, ignore everyone who disagrees with Martin Luther. Those are his words. Wow. Do you get a lot of, I'm assuming you probably get a lot of pushback when you present this information and what are the, the criticisms that a lot of times you receive for you just diving into, realistically, you're just reading history? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I provide my sources. I am then. Um, I get told, well, Lloyd, you know, you were using a very narrow definition of the word 
don't listen to anyone else, you see, because because really your definition is very narrow and you really should should uh, understand that, w- w- for instance, when you're talking about dolphins, let's say we had a planet with dolphins and these dolphins had to say this, perhaps within their context, I, I've literally had someone talk to me about dolphins on another planet. <laughs> no, literally. And, and, you know, and I'm using a narrow definition of a word. And, you know, if we had to apply this word to, I was like, yeah, right. So, um, look, some people get upset. There are those, granted. Um, but there are many Protestants, and I'm so surprised that tell me, I've never heard this before. I've never seen this. My priest never told me. I didn't learn this in seminary. I've had seminary students tell me this. I've had um, people who do Bible studies and who are very deep in the church, and they're like, I didn't know this. No one ever told me. They only said nice things about Martin Luther. They didn't tell me that Martin Luther said, oh, that disabled boy, yeah, he's not a real human. He doesn't have a soul. He should be killed. Murder him. Drown him or put a pillow over him and suffocate him to death. That's all good. And then the Nazis went, hey, Luther said we can do it. Let's let's run a death camp for the disabled. Martin Luther gave it. He's, he's okay because God says it's fine, right? Martin Luther said he spoke for Christ, which he did, right? So understand where these... So yeah, I, um, and they go, you know, you've made me think. You've made me realize I wasn't told the full story. Because um, I approach Christianity from a historical perspective. And and so yeah, lots of angry people, sure. Um Lots of, um, but I think more encouragement and support, although many people will misrepresent what I say. I will say, for instance, this priest, for instance, um, there's within the Russian Orthodox, but but also as far as I can determine, um, generally within the Eastern Orthodox, sort of the Orthodox denominations, there was a push to canonize Stalin as a saint. And there's actually paintings that were made of Stalin as as a holy figure, as a saintly figure. and. Um, certain priests, you know, would were was trying to venerate him and, and put up paintings, these really iconic sort of beautiful looking paintings of Stalin, Stalin being sharing with, with the host of angels or whatever the case is. And then and I simply stated, this happened, this priest or, you know, and I didn't say the whole Eastern Orthodox decided that Stalin, I, but people go, oh, you're attacking the Eastern Orthodox Church. You were trying to smear. I'm like, no, I just said this guy made a painting. And that, so they'll they'll attack me for attacking their church as opposed to actually just reading what I've said. Right. They'll, they'll project, I guess, that, that you're saying much more than you yes. actually are. And I, I think what you do is uh, obviously great work and you're just planting that little tiny seed in someone's mind. Like, Oh, maybe I just need to research more about who founded this church. Uh, Cause if you work your way back, it'll get to usually one person that founded the individual church. Yeah. I have a question for you before we go on, because um, but but the work that you've seen me do, two 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 perspectives. One, how did it how did it affect you in terms of looking at at previous narratives, right, and destroying some of those old narratives, and how did it bolster your faith in the Catholic Church? That's a great question. Uh, I was supposed to be the interview here. No, um, yeah, so. Obviously, what you're talking about with Sola Scriptura and the the not Bible alone, when you're going through the history of Martin Luther, because you hear at least in American Protestant circles about the they make the the not nailing the uh, was it 95 theses or whatnot it, on the door, making it sound like a like a hero's welcome or hero's journey of doing that, and then when you dive more into him as a person, um, it, it it makes you 
think about like the fruits of his labor and how it's devolved into the the sects of protestantism and then that allowed me to bolster my belief in the catholic church because if you go through history of all the crappy popes out there and just how uh, it's gone through ups and downs and the fact that it's lasted this long makes me feel confident even in these uh, very murky times which we talked about before we started recording is that there's murky times but it's it still provides me comfort and solitude in the church and then seeing also when you were doing the one uh, on the early church fathers and the didache just seeing how that that document that some are dating very very early on 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 the practices as early as the year 48 now or 48 now because i remember you were talking about it was like in the 50s but now it's 48 yeah no one one scholar one of the best in the world um he dates it as early as 48 Wow. So that's, that even confirms it because if you, like you were that's saying, before in, the, that's before the gospels. Yes. And, um, that confirms like the practices of the early church. If you read it, like you were saying, it's, it's pretty Catholic, <laughs> no ifs, ands, or busts without with how they practice their faith and the, the Eucharist and all that. It was, it's very eye opening and it felt, I feel more, um, not conflicted. That's not the right term. More um, solid in in my belief in the in the church being the body of Christ. Yeah. yeah, and I think the Protestant Church deliberately, shall we say, spreads a false narrative about the the history of Catholicism to to prevent Protestants from reading the early Church Fathers, to prevent them from studying the history of the Catholic Church, and looking at Christianity from a historic perspective. They go, the Bible alone, but something we spoke of earlier about this pride, but I know enough. I you know, I, I know for myself, right? Because the Holy Spirit speaks to me and it wouldn't lie to me, would it? Right? Um, which is private revelation, which is Gnosticism. But in the modern era, you're seeing it as well in the TikTok generation. Um, but again, also, because I come from, shall we say, a military perspective on it, I also look at this, I went and studied ideological warfare, how we fight non-kinetic warfare, let's say. And there are certain strategies inherent in how we design psychological campaigns against the nation. And you see these signs of, of causing fragmentation and teaching this kind of false confidence within people. And I've discussed this briefly on my channel as well, and I will be talking more about it. I just did a series on eight psychological themes that are inherent in totalitarianism. All of those are very much inherent in leftist ideology in the woke movement. And therefore it is, and it's, it's, it's the same thing you'd see in communism. These ideas are, are there. I mean, they're very much explicitly there. And uh, so there's certainly something that's evil, but it's presented so beautifully as something that's, you know, about freedom and, and so incompelling. Um, but yeah. Um, Sorry, I just I might, might yeah. Um, sometimes I don't know how deep I should go into a topic because I don't want to take up too much time and allow room for other discussions. No, you're you're good. I, I like letting the conversation flow naturally yeah. where it goes. But yeah, I mean, I started reading, um, listening to an audio book about uh, I forget the, the title of the book. It's I think it's like the oh goodness, of course I'm bringing it up now. Uh, oh, bearing false witness. Where they're talking oh, yes. about 
uh, where he's talking about all the um not even a he's not even a catholic individual but he was going through and just through history realizing all the the false narratives of uh the catholic faith and you you see that a lot the one chapter is talking about how uh, the catholic church was very anti-semitic during the crusades which that's not yeah. really the case there's yeah. a lot of protecting of the jews and all throughout europe and um it's just really fascinating when you look at history and and you kind of see that uh, yeah. of like the portraying of the Catholic church. And you have to wonder yeah. why is that the case? He's a sociologist. It's Rodney Stark and it's bearing false witness, debunking centuries of anti-Catholic history. He's, he's a Protestant and um, I think he's a Baptist or was, he died a few years ago. Um, yeah. Which is fascinating. I actually have a copy of the book. I was actually going through um, sections of it to, to, for, for some of my research and I'm planning to do talks on various topics in his book. And um, while not said explicitly, the Catholic Church, uh, the first people to use the printing press as a tool of propaganda were the Protestants. They were very, very good. Martin Luther was a, was a superb propagandist. And by that, I mean, he was an out and out liar. He was very, very good at it, both within a written medium as well as a visual medium by making, and it's something I will be talking about again in the future, but he created art and he inspired others to create art that was shocking. I mean, it will make a sailor blush when you look at some of the, some of the kind of drawings that he inspired. They are shocking. And this from a <clears throat> Christian. And Martin Luther, though, something that is not really discussed is that they... They created this fantastically effective, very powerfully effective propaganda campaign, utilizing lies, deception, half-truths, and by, by basically getting the lie out first before the truth could catch up. And it's been like that for 500 years. But on the other hand, also, um, when, I, when I listen to, to – and I, I listen to Catholics, I listen to Protestants um, to, to be up to date as to what, how everyone thinks and how they apply these ideas and how these ideas have morphed and, and so on, they – Martin Luther was very much anti-reason. He effectively called Aristotle, who who is the Aristotle's thought found is the foundation of Western thinking, the foundation of our scientific basis using non-contradictory logic. Right then, Aquinas comes along and refines and improves it. He he catechizes it. I guess there's the Catholic term. He Christianizes these some of these pagan ideas, but and so he takes what is good and what is right. And I mean, Aristotle's thought is, is, is profound considering that he didn't have revelation, right? And he oh. takes these ideas and he creates this really profound system of thinking. Aquinas comes along, improves upon it, and creates this rigorous method for finding truth. Martin Luther and his guys come along and they create a method to undermine that method. So the Protestant form of, shall we say, scholasticism is designed to undermine, destroy using sophistry using clever rhetoric the, the this approach to finding truth because i mean typically finding truth is boring you know it's kind of like analytical one plus one is equal to two it's kind of, sorry what you know where it's like brothers give me your ears i am going to do you know what the truth is i will give you you know it's it's sizzle it's not the steak whereas the steak is kind of dull it has no spice you know what i mean right hopefully yeah. so they created a very sophisticated method of um their method of scholasticism is really a method of disputation, arguing. It's a method of arguing and undermining. And then if you read Luther, he calls Aristotle, effectively equates him with Satan. He 
dismisses Aquinas, right? He gets rid of reason and logic, and he introduces irrationality and nominalism, which is which is a fundamentally destructive philosophy that destroys realism, destroys objectivity, and of course, it's going to it's going to poison Christianity at that point. You've got this toxic form of Christianity that that's got half a little bit of truth and a little bit of lie, you know, and it's, I mean, so there's that problem. Um, so yeah, there's, there's no way to find truth. And of course, you mentioned earlier that people will respond with a gut reaction to something negatively. They've been given a story and when they hear the trigger, boom, they react emotionally. They've never been taught to think logically through history, to question, to go through it step by step. That, that, that approach of science is very much a Catholic approach coming from that era, from Aquinas. And you read Pius X, my last point on this, he not only defends Christian truth or the Bible from a from a theological point of view, but Pius the Tenth is very very focused on defending reason, logic, because Martin Luther didn't just attack theology; he undermined logic, he destroyed logic. He he wrote the people don't realize his ninety five theses are are famous. He wrote ninety seven theses before he wrote that, and these theses are his disputation against reason. Who writes a disputation arguing against the use of reason? Well, Martin Luther. Hmm. And I think you see my, uh, the fruits of it all now with um, the, the extreme left in a lot of sects where it's just not logically based. It's not reasoning based. It's a, a lot of emotional feelings and that's the, the way it's, of it's nominalism it's different it's rationalism nominalism but it seems to have a basis in nominalism look it's not rational but it's not it's logical but it's not rational if that makes sense like take okay so luther introduces this nominalistic idea let me let's tie this into the whole um transgender movement for instance we believe in objective categories because we believe god made male and female so we come to this, eventually through a long process, we come to this idea of objective reality. We have metaphysics. Truth is a real thing. Truth is foundational. Truth is a profound, real thing, even though we can't touch it. Numbers are real. Logic is real, right? Martin Luther comes along and says, because of Occam, because of uh, yeah, William of Occam takes a lot of blame, but also the pagans and the Gnostics before him take some blame. Of course, this is a tradition that gets passed on. They state that there is no such thing as a universal, like woman, or dogness. Look at a chihuahua, you see a dog. You say, hey, that, that looks just like that St. Bernard. That looks just like that German Shepherd or like that Great Dane. Sure, the one's big, the one's small, the one's hairy, the one's not, but it, they're all dogs. They look very much the same, right? There's a universal essence of dogness, right? Manness, womanness, but they both fall into the human category. There's this universal as opposed to horse, right? Horseness, right? We can tell these distinctions. So these are real categories that have been created and these are just variations within the category right creativity within the category nominalism says there's no such thing as a manness or womanness there's just stuff random stuff and we apply arbitrary labels to those stuff so that for instance um if you have a let's say you see a bunch of people wearing hats right the only truth that you can infer from that is that they are individuals that are wearing a hat but there is nothing common between them. There's no wearing hatness that is a common factor. There's individuals wearing hats, and you are now making a random, arbitrary, completely made up, meaningless, no attachment to reality label that says, oh, there's hatness going around. Understand? It's mm -hmm. completely delusional. It's a denial of reality. But this is what Martin Luther introduced, 
And this is based on Gnostic and pagan thought prior. So he introduces these heresies and these errors. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense. So if you have a handbag, a wig, you're a woman now because you have the characteristics of, of this random label of woman. You see, there's no, there's no female category. There's no female universal. You know, you have, I've got a handbag, lipstick and a wig. I'm a woman now because I have the character. There's only external characteristics because there's no universal. Understand? Yeah, th that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like they're um, just the basic level from my understanding, I guess, is that it, it seems like they're placing human labeling above uh, God's creation at, at the yes. end of the day. And that, that leads to destruction. <laughs> but that's also atheism. Because it's the idea of man is the measure of all things. Only what your senses perceive is true. Then you have your truth. Right? That's how you have the concept of your truth. So now, now you, it's the same idea in atheism, but it's oddly enough the same idea that you see in Occam, the same idea in Luther. The same, you know, it's not Christian. It's, it's just it's something that clearly it's a, it's a denial of reality. So that, that is corrupt. That, that's at the core of it. Mm, yeah. And... Um... It's it's confusing and it feels heavy times to say the least with everything that's going on just in, yeah. in all the world. But um, that's why I jumped into this because I wanted to do um, put out positive news, which is the good news of Christ and the church and all of that. So um, I I don't know what you're I know what you're presenting on, so to speak, but I don't know what you're going to get into. So I don't know if I should save some of these questions for when we're we're in it. Um, of the things that I've spoken of, which are which are most interesting to you, and do you think would be most of most interest to your audience? Because I tend to say things that are pretty blunt. That that was a choice that I made to say things that are blunt, but I provide the evidence. I say things that are direct and unambiguous. And um, so, yeah, is there anything that you think I can maybe explore that would be useful to your audience? And uh, I, I think. Um, Maybe just going through, like, the, I guess, the uh, oral tradition of the Bible and how, because this is where I feel like a, a lot of confusion happens with, with, with what you see with discussions online where people think that the, the Bible, uh, to be more sarcastic, but just came down from heaven. It wasn't, it, they don't have wrapped their mind around you know there had to be some authority saying this is part of the bible this is not part of the bible and i think that's where you lead to a, a lot of confusion with a, authority being the deciding factor behind all of this and i'm just curious because there's always this negative view on tradition big t tradition and mm -hmm. how do you how did they utilize that to compose, um, say, the Bible? How did they, do you see writings early on and how they utilized um, what they were taught to then compose what, they, what you see? There were many arguments in the early church about what was authoritative scripture, what was valuable but extra-biblical, what was false, and there were deliberate efforts by Gnostics by many who made the very same arguments that Martin Luther made or Calvin made or other Protestant founders made, that they were the real Christians that were trying to falsify the, the story that was told 
you know, by the by the Christians that came after the apostles. Um, the process of canonizing the New Testament was essentially finished by the fourth century. Even within the second century, effectively, the canon had been decided. However, don't forget that we didn't exactly, we couldn't go down to the copy shop and just print a few uh, few books, right? That, so in many cases, there were just fragments of the Bible of what was the New Testament then. So you, I think the book of Mark or book of Matthew, I'm not sure which, um, was one that had been written in full and was pretty pretty common. And so lots of churches had the book of Matthew, let's say, only, and then the rest was from memory from oral recitation, right? So they didn't have the full Bible, but they would make sure that they stayed within the bounds of tradition and of the teaching of the magisterium that the bishop would would guide them to stay within certain theological boundaries, right? So if you didn't have the whole scriptura, you couldn't be soloing the thing, right? As I said earlier. So so therefore, they had to there had to be guidance from the bishop and the bishop had to get guidance from his bishop. So there was this line of authority that was that made sure that everyone stayed within bounds. There were even warnings in the letters of Paul to say, look, don't stray from, and certain churches have strayed. Right? Those warnings are there. Um, then, of course, you had these fake versions of the Bible being written, these Gnostic Gospels, right? And you'd never have the Gospel of Bob, because who's Bob, right? <laughs> it would be the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, the best, the better gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew's smarter, older brother, you know, <laughs> always to try and make them look cooler and better, right? Um, the gospel of Jesus's best friend, right? So you, you always had those kinds of names with the gospels and um, to try to promote them. And few people realize, and I'm going to be doing talks this year on the the gospel and the church in early early Christianity in Arabia, which is a subject that that academia seems to really not want to approach and just flat out say, no, there was none. Thanks. Have a nice day. Right. That's something we're going to have to deal with um, this year. And there were massive, massive theological battles, massive fights. I don't mean like fist fights, although that also happened, but there were huge fights over which is the real gospel. We've got seven versions of Matthew. You've got this guy telling lovely stories here. You've got that guy telling lovely stories. And then you've got this guy saying, give up your wealth and follow me. That doesn't sound so great. Mm-hmm. You know, you know who's, re- who's right here? We've got six, seven versions of this thing. Who's right? There were huge, huge confusion caused by this. Um, and, and the church took, I mean, there was this back and forth, and the church won out eventually. But this also means that, and Scholars falsely talk about, like Bart Ehrman talks about, there were many Christianities back in the day. It's like it's like there were many cell phones back in the day. Here's one cell phone. Here's another cell phone. This is another cell phone. There were many cell phones. That, no, that's not, dude, like, like, come on, Bart, you're not that stupid. Christian doctrine is not that flexible, right? You can't have Jesus had um, purple hair and, and, and was a DJ at the nightclub. Jesus was the savior. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus didn't die on a cross. Jesus taught hip hop at the synagogue. It's doctrine is not that flexible. There's there's a, there's there are clear sort of delineations as to what's acceptable theology, what's acceptable tradition. So you get these ideas, and um, so therefore the church, I think, was very clear and strict in its teaching, and eventually, so I mean, by the time you got to the Council of Nicaea, by the time you got to the later councils, you had the gospel. The, uh, the New Testament had been fixed. So I would say within the within the second century, the gospel was pretty much fixed. But 
it had to be confirmed more than once. And of course, the church didn't have the reach to enforce that same canon everywhere. So there were still variations, but there was a, a consensus that was forming. The Old Testament only got finalized at the Council of Trent. I mean, that's what, 1670s? So, so the again, so you had this long tradition that was building up, but prior to this, the, the, the consensus of the councils, you had this tradition that was guiding it and the authority of the bishops that was guiding that tradition. So those things were clearly a critical part of the development of the church and Christianity. Hopefully that's a, not a too long-winded an answer. No, that, that was great. And I, I think we have to go back and understand how information was passed down in ancient times. It's not like everybody was able to pull out their notepad and, and start writing. It was a very being literate it seemed like it was very uncommon in in that ancient time and you needed to pass down these oral traditions and also while yeah. you were saying that i was like I don't, I don't even know if i would be able to comprehend and be able to retain all that uh <laughs> information that was passed on orally back then I, I feel like they were built a little different than us now yeah. i mean even the dedicate speaks extensively of accepting oral teaching following oral guides and for people that don't know, what exactly is the Didache? Uh, so the Didache is an ancient catechism that seems to date to the end of the first half of the first century. Now, there are many Protestants that try to date it to the late fourth century, right? However, that date has consistently shifted back to 110, one, you know, 120, then 110, then 100, then 90, then 60. You know, now there are scholars putting it at 48, 50, which is prior to the Gospels being written. So this book seems to have been accepted as part of the canon for many, many churches of the early churches. This book was part of their canon, literally was. It, it basically, it reads like a Catholic catechism. It, it, it reads like the modern Catholic catechism in many ways. It's an instructional, it's not really, shall we say, a theological text. It's an instructional text. And it has very basic teachings that, for instance, the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is a very Catholic Eucharist. There's baptism. It's a very Catholic style of baptism. All of the teachings are, shall we say, non-Protestant, right? put it that way. So it was a document that if it had been retained in the canon, if the church had decided to actually include it in the canon, Protestantism would have had a very, very difficult start, if at all. It would have gotten off the ground because the Didache quite, quite bluntly shows that the church practice 2000 years ago and the church practice today are very very similar if not nearly identical when when was the because you you're i remember in your presentation it was discovered what in the 1800s late 1800s yeah it was discovered in the late 1800s i can actually find that data if you want me to but um let me uh but yes it was discovered in the late 1800s i just find it it, it just seems fascinating how you have Protestantism breaking out and then all of a sudden this early church document is just found it's just really <laughs> 1873 yeah 1873 so Hence. it had been found but the thing is he found it but he didn't realize he'd found it mm. he was reading something else and never checked the book and then he was reading something else and then seven years later in 1880 he decided to just oh let's have a look and oh my gosh this book had been alluded to in other writings, and then he realized he just found a copy of the Didache, so 1880, by a Greek Orthodox bishop. Yeah, and it's I highly recommend people. It's it's very easy to find. Um, 
reading the the, the Didache, and I highly recommend. Very good. There's uh, moral teachings in there, specifically the one that was blew my mind when you were talking about it, where it explicitly said, talks about abortion, uh, no to that, um, to pedophilia right from the get go, and it's it's really. Um, that was kind of mind blowing. Like, oh, it's just right out in the open. Yeah, it was something that was given to. I think there seemed to be a period where where someone had to enter into the church and they went through a period of preparation and learning before they became a Christian. Pretty much like if you join the Catholic Church, you go through this period. So there was that whole thing. It wasn't like you spin around three times, you know, get you know, and uh, you know, do a do a headstand and then do a couple of jumping jacks and you're a Christian now. Or like when you're Muslim, you just say. You know, you say a few words and Bob's your uncle, you're a Christian now. There had to be a learning process because Christians had to be sure that they understood the tradition because they didn't have a Bible. They had to understand the traditions. They had to understand the theology. They had to be able to perform the sacraments. They had to perform certain works. So there was this, and the Didache actually emphasizes these things. And also the Didache quite often um, quotes from the Deuterocanon as well. So it actually... It shows that that the early Christians were referring to the Deuterocanon on a regular basis. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, it just it, it was it was mind blowing when you were talking through that. So, I mean, we've been going fifty three minutes, and um, I was going to normally when I wrap up interviews in general, at least the, the questionnaire portion um, is what uh, I guess I know you're a history guy, but what's practices have you taken that has helped you spiritually to grow um as a a follower of Christ um you know that's a difficult question cuz um i i grew up in the church so i i was very familiar with 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 church practice and the bible and so on i mean i'm no bible expert but i mean i grew up sunday school and the whole bit right and went to church regularly, enjoyed going to church, in fact. And I had friends from the Baptist church, the that church, the other church. And I, I would go, I've been to all of them. You know, we, we had a thing. We would just, you know, I've, I've been to all the churches. And um, um, how can I say this? Um, I don't, I'm a Christian, but I didn't come at my channel and the work that I do as an evangelist. That was never my my thinking. I simply saw... As a Christian, I simply saw something bad in the world. I thought, I have to speak about this. I Something happened in France, as everyone knows, in 2015, the Bataclan massacre. That, for me, was a problem because I worked in the Middle East, and I was my job was to prevent things like that, right? to, to help to prevent things like that. And that, for me, was an issue. I studied counterterrorism, and I discovered the, the extreme bias and the whole monitoring, the the policing that was going on within these courses to prevent discussion of Islam, to prevent honest discussion of Islam. There and and there was a time that I, long story, but I nearly died one night. It was very close. Someone someone nearly killed me. Let's just say oh, wow. that that yeah, it's, uh, it didn't happen. Of course, I'm I'm here to talk about it. But let's just say that. Um, I didn't have to end anyone's life, and my life wasn't ended. That was it was a good it was a good night in that sense. Um, but it's like that changed my life. It's like there was my life before that moment and my life after. And I realized on the one hand, I and 
when this guy had the gun against my head, that's a long story. You know, it's weird, but I had this 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 movie playing in my head of all the things, all the regrets that I had, all the things I hadn't done. And and I realized, you know what? I am, I'm going to go, and I there's so many things that I could have done and should have done, but I didn't have the courage or I didn't have the, there was no reason I didn't do those things. There was nothing holding me back except my own stupidity and my lack of courage. And I, and I realized I have to change my life. And then let's just say I am, um, I am, um, yeah, let's, anyway, I grabbed the gun and I, anyway, so we had a bit of a change of situation and I, I left in a hurry. Okay. So, um, and, and, that changed my perspective and I realized I have to live with courage. I have to, I have to deal with things that are difficult. I've got to, I, it's like, cause I, one of the things that I came away with was one day I'm going to have to be, I'll be in front of God and I've got to say to him, he's going to ask me, I gave you all this talent. What did you do? What did you do with your life? What did you do? And I gave you a second chance. What did you do? And I, and I saw this and I thought about this and I got to do something. And I realized like um, maybe, and then, Next thing that happened, there was something happened when I was younger, um, about, about 15, 16. So that was in my late 20s. But when I was 15, 16, something else happened. And and there was this, I had this, it's weird. I've, ne I've never told this, I mean, this publicly, but it's like I had this vision of, of Jesus in a, in, a, in a real sense. But again, another another potentially, another hostile situation, let's just say. And... And I, this voice told me, cutting out all the details, focus on what's in front of you. That's weird. This voice told me, basically, I've got your back. Focus on what's in front of you. Deal with what's in front of you. Don't worry about what's at your back. And and that was kind of something that I, that I've just so yeah, it's like full speed ahead. Never mind the icebergs, you know. And um, and also I feel that we've got. There's plenty of people that talk about theology and talk about all sorts of things, but I, I think that there's something that's missing. I think that few people come at this as a as a life or death thing, in a sense that that I'm very practical. I was an engineer. I built security systems. I built surveillance systems to protect critical things and people from being blown up. So there was the margin of error was 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 small, but also you could tell if you failed because something blew up. You know, we just lost five you know, $10 million helicopters or a hundred people died. Simple, you know? So the, the line between success and failure was very distinct. There was no gray areas. And, and, I've, and these experiences kind of have come into my, my approach that I'm, I'm looking at this as practical and as objectively as possible. And objectivity requires logic. Logic is truth, right? Logic requires truth. And, and, and truth requires facts, you know, if you're going to build something, it needs facts and the facts have to be reasonable and you have to do your research and you've got, and this complex machine has to fit together. So I come at it in a sense as an engineer and um, building multi-million dollar security systems. I mean, these things are complex, but you break them down into logical pieces. You assemble them and they have to work reliably, right? So this is kind of, these experiences came in and I'm, and I'm just trying to solve my confusion, the lies I was told. And I think I'm just taking people on my journey and saying, here's, I'm arriving at these answers. These are my conclusions. This is how I've arrived. Here's the evidence. You be the judge, you know, but so I don't know if that answers your question the way that you wanted to answer, but that's my answer. No, that was a, a beautiful answer. I appreciate you sharing all of that. Yeah. That was, <laughs> wasn't, ex I didn't know where you're going, but I, I appreciate you 
taken us there. And uh, I, I think it's, it's eye-opening for everybody that they need to take their own path to, to where they need to go realistically. It's um, the path of my path is different than your path is different than everyone else's path. But the, the trust is in the Lord and how he guides you to where you need to be. And you have to be humble. It always comes back mm-hmm. to humility and be humble in wanting to learn more and wanting and accepting him and and maybe if you're at the place of like say you're agnostic or atheist or uh be humble enough to at least say a prayer saying god i don't believe you but show me that that you exist and that may be the first step that you need to take and uh, mm-hmm. i think it's just um it's just fascinating to hear your journey and your just wealth of knowledge and um you're you're mentioning did did you ever have like a a period where because you're you're very a history buff and you're an engineer and i relate because i'm an engineer as well that like it's very logical um one plus one equals two type situation did you ever have like worries about the historicity of say the, the gospels and the 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 journey and the story of Christ was that ever a concern for or not concern yes. but like yes did you ever rack your brain with that yes there was a time I think it happens to many of us lost my faith I guess and it didn't happen deliberately it was more by accident but but then again you get sidetracked you know you you're young and you're stupid you know I think that's a that's a fairly common problem in the world and um, one of the I guess to pick one thing the movie Zeitgeist I watched the movie Zeitgeist, and it spoke about Christianity. And I bought that story hook, line, and sinker. And then one day, you know, me being curious about everything, I decided to go and research the details of the narrative that was spoken of in that movie. And, I mean, for years, it sidetracked me. I I wouldn't say I became an atheist because I don't – I'd looked at atheism, and I thought, this is nihilistic. And this is stupid. Honestly, I just looked at it and I'm like, this is the dumbest idea ever. Honestly, I just like, it's like, how can people believe this trash? Anyway, that's a long, that's a different story. But um, I stopped believing in Jesus. I believed in God because I thought, no, that, that makes sense to me because the things I'd seen in my life growing up. But, but, then I, but then I went to go and research and I started to look at the history that debunked the narratives in Zeitgeist. And I was like, but that's... And then you look at, you, you cross-reference, you corroborate this with other things. You look at reliable sources. And then, and then one of the things I'd learned was, was language. I'd been trained in, when you work in dangerous situations, you have to, take an example, you work as a bouncer. People come to you and spin you a story at the nightclub all the time. Everyone's trying to sweet talk you. And you start to learn, you start to discern because the best bouncers have very, very good verbal skills. They've got very good interpersonal skills. They've got very high EQ. They're not there to act as meat shields or to, you know, you're really there to maintain calm, right? To make sure that you de-escalate. And the best bouncers have incredible verbal skills, right? They've got incredible um, ability to assess people and emotionally respond within the moment. And you start to listen to the language. And then I, it got to a point where I could determine when someone was trying to propagandize or persuade. And you can, you can see the difference in the structure of, if you read a, you, you read a programming manual, you read a, let's say you're doing, um, I don't know, let's say you're doing a JavaScript or something and you read a JavaScript manual, it's written completely different to Mein Kampf, 
which is written completely different to a theological textbook. It's written completely different to a children's novel. You can tell the language is different. There's a different purpose, different intent, different structure, different beginning, different ending, different emphases. And you can start to tell with propaganda, you can start to determine the structure. Like, And now it's like, little like, I'm like, yeah, that's, you know. So my years of working where if I'd made a mistake, I could literally get killed. I, I, I learned to trust my instinct and I started to get better and better at this. And then I started to realize this language is polemic. This language is rhetoric, but it's not logic. This language has a particular structure. It's very persuasive, but it's not factual. And then I started to look at the research and I, and eventually the whole zeitgeist story I realized was, was nonsense from top to bottom. And, and that made me angry and I got angry and I'm still angry because I was lied to. And then I said, well, I'm going to fix that. You know? So I've never seen the movie. So what exactly were they portraying Christ as in the, in the movie or there? What were that they was an astronomical before? interpretation that Jesus never existed. It's really an astronomical allegory, you know, allegory. And um, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, it's it's well done. It's well done, and I believed it. But once you take it apart, you realize it's fake. So, but also then you start to like you read Aquinas the way he writes. It's so factual, right? And then you read Martin Luther, and it's like it's like he's like he's a used car salesman. You know, like these two don't compare. That's very fascinating. The way you now look at. I guess you've honed that skill throughout all the stuff you've researched is now you can sort of pinpoint when somebody's trying to sell you something versus when someone's just outright telling you like a fact, for instance, which is yeah. definitely a practice I need to do with the, uh, learn and pick up, I guess. How, how would how would you suggest somebody go about doing that? Is it just through practice over time? Um, you know, start with basic non-contradictory logic. Learn the trivium. Right, you have grammar, rhetoric, and logic. First of all, people have bad grammar, which which is which is a combination of things. We can break it down into their vocabulary is poor. Improve your vocabulary. Open the dictionary. Start reading. I did that. Right. Improve your your vocabulary. These days, you've got these AIs that are amazing. Right. Give it a sentence. Ask it. Write the sentence for me in five different ways. Right. And then start to see how it structures it and say, write it in a way that's compelling. Write it in a way that's factual. Write it like this learn right but also write a sentence the way you normally would and then tell the ai please fix my grammar and then suddenly your spelling mistakes and your punctuation just goes away right and you have a proper sentence because people write badly and don't realize that they write badly think in america they say well you know 98.2 percent of all americans except you who are listening of course anyone is listening to this is exempt from this none, none of you were were dumbed down in school but but 98.2 percent of all americans now read at a second grade level and write at a first grade level here's your crayons you know and and then everyone's like no well that doesn't apply to me but but seriously read the internet read anything <laughs> read the comment section <laughs> I mean, it's like you're like that sounds like english but i don't understand a word <laughs> right so so feed this into an ai and have it and then look at the difference so improve your grammar right learn punctuation because Precision is important. If you're an engineer, precision is important. Learn precise language. Read precise model someone who has it already. All right? Like Jordan Peterson, love him or hate him, but the man's language is precise. The man's mm. language is fantastic. The way he describes things, I'm like, man, I wish I could talk like that. I wish I could explain things like he does. 
It's fantastic language. Go find someone else then. They're good Catholic theologians that explain things really well. Model someone who has the skill you want, right? Copy someone who really has it. So learn good language. Develop that skill so you can communicate, which also means you'll understand meaning better. It means you'll get your ideas across better. And then learn logic so that your arguments will be sound. And then learn rhetoric so your arguments will be compelling, right? But I think we're looking at these days, you get rhetoric everywhere, compelling arguments, things that sound great. But I think people are starved for logic. I think people are just starved of facts, starved of truth. And people want certainty. I get emails constantly saying, you know, I was so confused about history. You've told me things. You've shown me things. I've gone to check. You're right. I believe this now. I know I know where to look. I've learned. And I my confusion has gone away. And my understanding has come. You know, I get so many people telling me I was so confused. Well, so was I. And I'm just on that journey and sharing that with people. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think you're right on with people's desire for logic. You see that a lot with how people are hungry for, say, like a long-form conversation, like what we're talking about and sharing different ideas. And you're seeing the rise of these longer-form podcasts instead of, you know, the classic short bursts um, that you see with like news hits and all that type of stuff. Now, granted, you see the rise of TikTok and Instagram Reels, so you still have that as prevalence. Um, but hopefully – with more people getting into the, the, uh, different theologians and people of, of logic base get into these spaces, it can now open other people's eyes to um, deeper thinking. I mean, if you read, it was funny when you're talking about the comment section, but if you read any ancient writer and how just well versed they are with the, the written language, it's it's mind blowing yeah. compared to uh, what you see nowadays. And I definitely need to improve my language for sure. Yeah, read Mark Twain. I mean, you know, people make fun of like those old yokels down south, you know, the Revolutionary War, America. Those people have better English than your average university graduate from Harvard today. In fact, I mean, these days you probably don't want to admit you come from Harvard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, in this day and age, it's like Harvard's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I came from community college down the street. You came from Harvard, didn't you? You know, because it's, it's embarrassment now. I mean, you get university graduates who have very poor English, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, I mean, people from the 17, 1800s in America often were highly literate and highly erudite. So yeah, we need to go back to that. I mean, th those were better times for certain reasons. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I I don't, are you planning on sharing a, a presentation of sorts? Because I didn't know um, if, if, if you wanted to do that or if we can just, um, if you feel comfortable with discussing what we did and we can wrap it up. Um, no, I don't have to show a presentation. I think, yeah, because we, we just followed the flow of the conversation. Because um, I, I thought we'd go with that. I, if you were going to ask me questions then I, and I needed to go into presentations, I was going to bring up items. Um, but I think we've covered many topics and of course those topics are covered in depth on my channel i've got various articles i've got various um videos covering those in detail and i've got the sources that people can get off my archive i've got over 2000 nearly 2400 sources in my archive that people can go and get that are handpicked so yeah that, that's it for me unless you have any final questions no that's that was um great i really appreciate you coming on to the podcast and this discussion was very eye-opening and i definitely learned 
a lot. What can people see from your channel going forward? What do you have planned coming out soon? Um, yeah, I, I, I did an analysis of my content and it's, the end result was my work is contentious. <laughs> it's right. Cause I, I tackle difficult questions. I, I, I tackle difficult things and I give very blunt answers. Um, but I will be doing, um, the philosophy of nominalism and I will be touching on William of Ockham as, as a source that really influenced Luther who took, took this, this corrupt philosophy and and then this then made its way into luther's theology right i'll be doing that so i'll also be doing a detailed series on martin luther and covering everything that people haven't told you about occam and the things that they forgot to tell you about martin luther just by accident of course right and i think once you learn about these people you realize that we were fed a very carefully curated series of facts that that shared, that shied away from the the facts that would that would actually make us disqualify these people as any kind of authority in anything. We would throw Luther under the bus, then we would reverse the bus and drive over him again, right? And then we would throw him in a ditch and set him on fire. And then we'd throw Occam on top of him after we'd done the same to him, right? So you you I'll be covering that. So I'll be doing, um, I've got something like 40 different presentations coming up. I'll be going on a lot of the early church. I'll also be tying how Christianity is the bulwark against totalitarianism and how a lot of totalitarian ideologies, all of these ideologies are all just anti-Christian and why we have to rediscover our Christian heritage, our Christian traditions, how these are the only things that will allow us to defeat things like Islam, things like um, totalitarianism. And so those are things that will be covering on my on my channel coming up. Awesome. Well, I, I look forward to it. And again, Lloyd, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. No? Thank you very much for the opportunity. Hey, guys. Thank you for watching this video. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. I always enjoyed all the interviews that I do. If you are new to this channel or this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel, whichever way you're watching it. If you are on podcast platforms, listen up. Listen I would like you to subscribe, obviously, and then leave the podcast a five-star review, whether you are on Spotify or whether you are on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast grow. And as always, just share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, share this YouTube video if you just want to share the YouTube video as well. If you're here on YouTube, that is the best way we can grow this community as a whole. And go to adambuckingham.locals.com if you want to join the community and also support the podcast. So hopefully we can do bigger and better things and have bigger and better interviews, and I can interact with all of you all on a one-to-one -one basis. So go do that. And until next time, I hope you have a blessed week. Bye.